0: everyone. This is a Sound Health radio show where we talk about the crossroads of the environment and our health and longevity with Richard Talk to Me Guy and Sherry Edwards is off working on the Sound Health Portal. I'd like to suggest that you go to the soundhealthportal.com, scroll down just a bit and click on the watch how button. That'll explain, it's not hard, but it's just easier to do it this way, to watch the watch how that explains how you do a vocal recording, how you do everything, and it's real simple. Then, after you see that short video, then go back, scroll down the page further on soundhealthportal.com and look at the active campaigns, such as it could be Corona Conflict or Biodiet or PTSD, and see something that's of interest to you. Then click on Free Vocal Analysis, You'll have to sign up so that they have some place to send the record, the information. And then it'll walk you through doing your recording. And usually within one to three hours, you'll get your workup back. I suggest sitting down with a cup of tea and reviewing it. And if you have a practitioner such as Dr. Greenblatt, you could take that to him and they'd go, wow, that's really interesting. That's really, let's look at this some more. Or an osteopath or an acupuncturist or somebody who has a bigger picture view of. You. Great work. I'm so happy that it's online now. For years, we have to, had to lug around computers to do it. Now we can do it anywhere. It's great. To hear and share replays of the show, about 30 to 40 minutes after you hear the outro music, go to talktomeguy.com, scroll down that page, and you'll see the show at the top of the episode page. There are also archives of hundreds of hours I think I'm over 500 hours now. Available there as well. Even some of the older shows that I did with Dr. Greenblatt previously. And I'll put links to those in the show notes. On each page at the lower right, there's a microphone. You can tap that mic, leave me a comment, leave me a thought, leave me a question for a guest, or a suggestion for a guest. Or just say hi. And I'll be notified. With that pioneer in the field of functional and integrative medicine, board-certified child and adult psychiatrist James M. Greenblatt, MD, has treated patients since 1988. After receiving his medical degree and completing his psychiatry residency at George Washington University, Dr. Greenblatt completed a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at John Hopkins Medical School. He served as the chief medical officer at Walden Behavioral Care in Waltham, Massachusetts, for nearly 20 years, and has been an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine and Dartmouth College Geisel School of Medicine. He's the author of eight books, including the bestseller Finally Focused: The Breakthrough Natural Treatment Plan for ADHD. His updated edition of Answers to Anorexia was released in October 2021, and his newest book, Functional and Integrative Medicine for Antidepressant Withdrawal, is available now. He's the founder of Psychiatry Redefined, an online learning platform dedicated to an evidence-based personalized treatment model for mental illness. Dr. Greenbatt joins us to talk about his journey to Psychiatry Redefined. Welcome,
1: Dr. James. Uh, great. It's nice to be with you again, Richard.
0: Yes. <laughs> we were talking backstage, and it's been like five years, and we're both like, how did that happen? Life happens, that's for sure. Absolutely. I want to ask, I haven't asked this before, what is the integrative approach? And it is, has it always been with us and just more doctors such as yourself, if it introduced it or is that something that has evolved in the practice of medicine?
1: You know, I think it's uh, e- evolved and, you know, in all our work and writings now, we we use the term integrative and functional because they, they have two slightly different meanings and I think it's important to establish that. Integrative has taken kind of hold on, on traditional medicine and, and that's where we look at everything from spirituality to mindfulness to lifestyle yoga and now many of our academic uh, hospitals have trainings and it's okay to talk about that stuff the the functional medicine is still not well accepted and that's really digging deeper looking at root cause looking at nutritional deficiencies and genetic vulnerabilities and everything from the gut bacteria to infections so most of my work and writings now use the term integrative and functional to really capture what we need to really evolve for my work, the treatment of mental illness. Mm-hmm.
0: And when did, did those approaches come into your practice or was that always your lean
1: Well, yeah, it kind of started before medical school. I thought I was going to, you know, change the world with brown rice and kale, you know, 45 (laughs) years ago. And um, so, you know, kind of walked out of training as a child psychiatrist, uh, you know, uh, with just prescription pads and treating uh, patients with medication. So it was pretty quickly out in the real world of um, practice where I realized, you know, why I went into medicine and, and slowly got back into a integrative approach and were people were other doctors
0: pointing at you in a like what's this man doing over here he's not following prescribing drugs on a regular basis he's actually working with diet was that the early days of that
1: well there was always a, a group of, of patients that they understood and wanted the approach so um, but I established myself in traditional psychiatry kind of by accident, by ending up um, specializing in the treatment of eating disorders. So I was treating patients with severe anorexia nervosa who were, by definition, malnourished. And I, I got to talk about nutritional deficiencies to my colleagues because they, they had to listen about omega-3s and zinc and B vitamin deficiencies because uh, these kids were starving. So that's what kept me in traditional medicine, you know, for these 30 years because I could continue to talk and learn about the role of nutrition and mental health.
0: Mhm. And in your 30 years, have you seen an increase in anorexia or is it that we have so much media now that it seems like it's everywhere?
1: No, there's been pretty dramatic, I think rates of them almost doubled the 10 years leading up to 2018. And then with COVID, there's been a dramatic spike where treatment programs have long waiting lists now, and uh, the age of onset is getting younger. The severity of the illness is getting more severe. So it clearly has increased.
0: And do you have a theory about why that is? Or is it that, or is it that vast pool of social media madness?
1: Well, I I kind of work backwards. I I think um, the social media madness, you know, I kind of call the gasoline on the fire. I don't believe it Mm -hmm. causes eating disorders, but it Mm -hmm. certainly contributes. And uh, but there are many factors that contribute to uh, a young child or adolescent or even adult starting to diet. And that change in eating can trigger a severe eating disorder in a genetically vulnerable individual so whether it's the pediatrician telling someone they're 5 pounds overweight or some now sometimes there are now these school report cards telling kids they're overweight or social media obsessions about how people look something triggers a change in diet and that can for some end up in this uh, life-threatening illness anorexia nervosa mm-hmm.
0: And do you think, I was going to say this to later, but it's going to be a reoccurring theme in my mind. Do you think some of that contribution might be due to the total toxic load? And I mean that in the sense of, we were talking a little bit about environment backstage. Glyphosate, messing with the microbiome and how our digestive systems are stressed out just because of the pollution coming to into our bodies. And I'm a, I mean, there's things such as lead and other issues, but there's just a lot of toxins in the environment. Do you think that's adding to the yes. tipping, po- tipping over tipping point?
1: Yes, that's why it's hard to come up with one factor. You can list 10 and then all of a sudden you remember there's 10 more. And part of the, you know, my work around anorexia nervosa as a nutritional deficiency really focuses on one mineral zinc deficiency Uh And many of the toxins that you're describing, the um, PCBs and the phthalates, they all bind zinc and make it less bioavailable and can create zinc deficiency. So to me, these toxins are absolutely a path towards that um, overload, making someone more vulnerable to an eating disorder.
0: When I was a kid, which was a long time ago, and driving through, I grew up on the Monterey Peninsula, and we drive through the Salinas Valley and live near the Salinas Valley. Grew up with artichokes being grown in our front yard, literally. I grew up in apartments in Carmel where there were literally farmers in the front yard growing artichokes. So I've had a lot of chemistry in my life. And I remember as a child how fun it was to stick my head out of the car and be dusted by a crop duster. Because they were crop dusters, and wow, how cool! Look at that, boosh! You'd have the you know mist on your face, and your mother would be yelling at me to get back in the car. And it wasn't until at least a decade later that I realized that I was probably DDT. I'm that old that they were probably spraying the field openly with DDT in the Salinas Valley, and it just blows my mind, you know, whether it's the methyl bromide in the Salinas Valley. What they do to the fields with methyl bromide to strip the fields of everything before they plant strawberries because the strawberries are so immunosuppressed. We just seem to be so aggressive with adding toxins to our environment. I don't have I don't have a clean question there. I just an observation of like, you know, I I think of growing up as a kid. It was just part of what we did. We didn't think about, oh, that crop duster might be doing something tricky or dangerous let alone aerosolizing it into the mist so cars driving by are getting it, but then spraying it on the foods affecting the water table. And it just seems to have gotten worse and worse.
1: There's uh, very good research looking at um, children living closer to farms with pesticides, having much higher incidence of um, ADHD and other um, psychiatric illnesses. So um, this is... um, a, a significant and, and growing problem, not only the environmental toxins, but the diets affecting uh, our kids' ability to kind of detoxify these um, toxins.
0: And I also grew up in that era when it was so excited to get a box cereal. you know, the idea of, right. "Oh wow, rather than oatmeal." I'll jump for a moment to talk about my grandmother, which I'm certain the audience is tired of hearing about, but my grandmother lived to be 106. And I feel she died in the 70s. So she literally came across the United States in a wagon, not because this was like a glamping choice. She came across the United States in a wagon from Michigan to Salt Lake City, where eventually she and her husband ate an organic diet completely unintentionally, meaning the the cheapest way to grow zero food was to have a cow, add that manure to the field, work the field, have healthy soil. No chemistry involved. And therefore, my mother, grandmother lived to be 106, never had any issues until she fell over on the front porch sweeping snow off the front porch at 98. Wow. And I just don't see, I, I'm certain there are parts of the world where this is true, where there are still people living a long time because they don't have toxins in their lives. And I can't form that into a good question. I think it goes. I think it's back to your converse, what you're saying about the idea of phthalates and PCP and all that. I almost used a bad word. Stripping out zinc or some micronutrient we need in our system. Now you've come a long way from your days of kale and tofu. I oh, know it was kale and some grain, <laughs> brown rice. That was it. Brown rice. Brown rice. Brown rice. Brown rice. And how do we? Do you start with – let's say – okay, I'll jump to this. Somebody brings in a child, a boy at the age of 10. He's been said at school that he's difficult or he has ADHD, and maybe he's not acting out radically, but maybe he's just enough where they're like, we should probably do something for Johnny. Do you start with nutrition or do you start with a psychological intake or what is the process? Could you take us through the how you work with a child?
1: Sure. I mean, I think our goal is, is to, you know, snap our fingers and and have the, the diets of these children um, or the family just change, you know, from the Pringles and pasta to whole grain foods. But, you know, as a child psychiatrist, I think my first job is to have an alliance, you know, therapeutic alliance with, with the family and the child. And if I just um, – they walk into my office and I say, stop the sugar – get rid of the Kit Kat and all this stuff, and then we're going to come back. And so as much as diet is the most important umbrella, it, it's the hardest in our culture for parents. <coughs> so um, my job is to make sure they understand that, you know, there's some limitations in traditional psychiatry, just prescribing medicine for symptomatic-based care, and that we can explore and dig deeper. But I, I think what parents appreciate is the objective testing that we do. So we're not just saying stop gluten, stop this. Um, We're saying we're going to look at some biochemical parameters, we're going to look at metabolites in the gut, we're looking at some genes, and it's that once those testing comes back, we're going to be able to kind of personalize a treatment plan to improve the behavior and or the emotions of your child.
0: I'm I'm chuckling to myself thinking that as a
1: as a mm,
0: freshman in high school I was heavy even though I walked a lot I walked all over Carmel was a small town and I walked all over However I was heavy so my parents took me to the family physician who was also the physician who burst me into the world so we had family relationships and his solution was to to give me these little white pills which I later figured out in life, were dexedrine. And his advice was, don't take too many, you'll be climbing the walls. And he was very kind. He was well-meaning. However, in the mid-early 60s, that was it. Here, take some speed, which blows my mind. Pardon?
1: This was to lose weight, to help you lose weight? Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Not a diet, not a thought of, as you say, the the kinds of carbs we were eating or, you know, we ate sort of a standard American diet, good vegetables, good meat. Unfortunately, my parents had friends who had cattle that just grew up, you know, lived out in the fields and then they would have a bad day and end up on our table. So that wasn't the issue as much, but just the other, the grains, the shredded wheat, the ODOs, all that kind of stuff. And that was it. Take the speed, which he never called speed, but he just said, "Be careful, you might be climbing the walls if you take too many of these." And I hated them. I took them once and went, "I hate that feeling. I'm never doing that again." Um, so you've, we've come a long way to where you actually—this is why I really like your work because you're actually thinking about mental state. But you're starting out with, "What are you eating?" Which I don't think a lot of doctors still. Probably people around you do, but they just don't seem to get that part. I know adults who are still eating Pringles in bags right. of you know the five pound bag of chips from Costco, thinking that's like a good lifestyle
1: really e yeah, or the dietary recommendations are just uh decreasing fat and um we we know what that's done in the last thirty years has not touched the uh, obesity epidemic, maybe made it worse, and I believe this recommendation to eliminate or decrease fat has really wreaked havoc on mental health and I believe part of the cause for some of the uh, explosion in mental health problems.
0: Mm-hmm. I was going to say this to later, but it makes me ask about the dreaded, this is my opinion when I say dreaded, the dreaded vegetarian or vegan diet.
1: Well, we actually just gave a presentation um, as a kind of a warning to to parents that I'm quite um, comfortable saying that a, a vegan diet in an adolescent is a high risk factor for the uh, development of a mental illness. Uh, certainly eating disorders, the research has established it, and we've seen it in anxiety and depression. Again, it's not every vegetarian adolescent, but those that might be genetically vulnerable that go on a restrictive diet, eliminating major nutrients like zinc and B12 and certain amino acids, just places them at risk for mental health challenges.
0: A hundred years ago, it seems like a hundred years ago, but it was actually in the 80s. I got my degree as a master herbalist and had a retail herb store with a large selection of botanicals actually on the modern peninsula before the aquarium was there, so that's how long ago that was. And any time somebody who would come in and was on a vegetarian or vegan diet, I would try and lean them gently over to, oh, come on, couldn't you have a bit of even turkey? (laughs) You know, And it was just because I never met a young vegan female who wasn't having some sort of hormone issues. And I wasn't doing diagnostic work at all. I was just by knowing people, how they were, how they acted, how they were in terms of their, you know, kind of a twitchy characteristic. Um, and I saw that a lot in the vegan yoga crowd where they, there's a certain kind of low level of anxiety. And I think it's because their body's going, we need some fat over here. Fat is good. And it's a trend. Absolutely. It still is a trend with the, hot box yoga crowd in my opinion that there's a lot of vegetarianism and i understand the theory of why they're doing it but you need good fats is it do you think that it's possible with enough work and that that was sort of my opinion with enough work you can almost fool your body into thinking it's getting animal product fat by doing particular oils and maybe omega-3s, but that's coming from fish and they don't like to do that. Is there any kind of workaround or really do you think you need some, what I will call, quality fat from
1: time to time? Well, absolutely you need the fat. I mean, I think the, there are many people that are going to do okay on a vegetarian diet. Um, and uh, part of the issue is many people feel good initially, maybe their first eight weeks, because they're eliminating a lot of junk food and other things. And then when they start feeling a little lethargic or down or not as motivated three, four months after that, they don't associate it with the vegan diet. They start looking for other causes. But oftentimes we can pinpoint some of these micronutrient deficiencies and certainly these um, fats.
0: And do you think this contributes to our deficiency in vitamin D since we do seem to be also very vitamin D deficient?
1: Yeah, I think the vitamin D... You know connection is certainly our staying inside the sunlight um but certainly, yeah, we're not eating the anchovies and fish, and we're not um um out in the sun, and if we are, we're just lathering our kids with sunscreen to minimize any absorption um so uh, vitamin D you know people think about for immune health and bone health, but it has profound implications for mental health vitamin D is a cofactor in the rate-limiting step for the synthesis of of serotonin, and uh, vitamin D deficiency we see across um, lots of psychiatric illnesses, depression, and Alzheimer's are probably the most Mm well-researched. And you think...
0: There's a question. There will be a question here. That the use... I'm anti-sunblock myself, mostly because it's chemicals that you're smearing on your child's skin or your skin, and then you're going out into the sun and your pores are dilating or diffrating, and that goo is going into your system. So for me, it's a a two-no-win. You're blocking the vitamin D from getting to your skin, and you're photodriving and whatever chemicals in your sunblock. Isn't it just better for us to have a bit of a tan? Isn't that our ultimate good sunblock I'm not saying you have to go out and get roasted crispy but some kind of Sun on the tissue is good
1: well you know I'm not going to argue with the dermatologist but I certainly yeah. you know, my opinion is that absolutely small amounts of Sun can be helpful and there's a lot of new research actually looking that the multiple wavelengths from light just being outside and not even in the Sun has tremendous health benefits
0: I have so much more there, but we'll back away from that. I'm I'm, I'm personally opposed to smearing stuff on your skin. It's our skin. Come on, it's what holds us together. It it likes having sunlight on it, in my opinion. And there was a you had a great article. You had a great article. I can't find it now in my notes, but there was a great article you had on your site about vitamin D. Do you recall what that is? I'm trying to find it
1: right yeah, I mean, we, we've written uh, particularly about vitamin D and depression, and, and uh-huh. again, vitamin D and Alzheimer's. And the, the literature has been established for many years. It just uh, doesn't get the recognition, and most psychiatrists aren't looking and testing uh, for vitamin D deficiencies. Um, people are leaving that to, you know, the endocrine specialists, and our mental health specialists are just pretty much ignoring it.
0: Oh, this is the article, the one in, in uh, the article on vitamin D and suicide risk factors, how vitamin D can help. That was yeah, an amazing the, the thing suicide, I bumped into.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think the one of the most powerful interventions uh, that a functional or integrative psychiatry model can be most helpful for is looking at a model for suicide prevention. And it's looking at multiple biomarkers, And vitamin D being one of them, other inflammatory markers, we've talked about cholesterol, very, very low cholesterol. All these factors have been shown for 20 years to increase suicide rates, but nobody is looking and uh, adjusting, you know, a treatment plan based on these. And why is that? <laughs> I've been throwing that. I've out of the universe. been spending maybe 30 years trying to sort it out. Sometimes because it might be too simple. Sometimes because you know nutrition can't affect something as serious as a psychiatric illness. So we just don't um, really uh, kind of appreciate some of these simple interventions that have profound public health consequences. Wow.
0: I'm going to jump to something because it it does come to mind. I want you to talk for a moment, if you would please, about the amazing thing that still blows my mind. I rest. I stumbled back onto this when I was studying for the show. Seven
1: Up. Wow, really? Seven Up?
0: And and talk about lithium and Seven Up, if you would please.
1: Uh sure. Um, you know, for many years, and before I got into medicals caused fascinated by the um, the element lithium so we we describe it as nutritional lithium and um, it's been around uh, for billions of years since the earth was formed or the galaxy actually one of the first three elements in the big bang so 13 billion years ago hydrogen helium and a little lithium and it it was you know settled uh, in the earth when the earth was formed and it's it's in our water supply And it's critical, so this is the element. People think of lithium as a drug, and it is at high dosages, but it's also a natural element that is in our water supply, in our food supply, and it's critical for brain function. So the 7up story goes that in the early 1900s, they had the soft drink, 7up, that we now still have, it's really a lithiated drink. It was based on uh, adding lithium to carbonated water, and it's supposed to improve your mood. So seven is uh, the atomic weight of lithium. It's actually 6.92, so they round it up. So they have seven, and up it's supposed to lift your mood. So for many years, until I think it was uh, the 40s, when they had some problems with people taking too much lithium and dying. So 7-Up was a lithiated soft drink sold to lift your mood and improve your irritability. So that is how (laughs) that story started. And lithium as a nutritional intervention is something I've been um, integrating into my practice for 30 years.
0: Yeah. I think that was one of the first shows I did with you was the lithium book. And I, I think I started taking lithium when I interviewed Jonathan Wright in the 90s. He mentioned it back then. He was always a thought leader in in nutrition, and I've been taking nutritional lithium since then.
1: Because yes, no, absolutely. He's one of the people that inspired me to to dig deeper and and to think about it. And he um, has um, made it very simple and very clear to help people understand this role of this mineral. Yeah. And
0: this is a big jump, but is lithium a genetic monodulator? I have a note here about this. Does it modulate, can it moderate or modulate our genetic makeup? I'm not quite sure that's the well,
1: word. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, lithium has so many properties, Um method of action modes of action we describe it so affecting neurotransmitters and second messengers but one of the most significant is being able to you know turn off and on genes we call that epigenetic changes and it can affect some of the genes that help um, neurons in the gra- in the brain grow better so it is very important uh, kind of epigenetic findings that we can utilize in, in clinical care. Mm. And
0: does it have benefit on our cognitive abilities?
1: Well, we, we've known that for many years, that, um, particularly as, as a mode of prevention. So we found people that took prescription lithium had lower rates of dementia and Alzheimer's. Hmm. And then we've also found that the amount of lithium in the drinking water, just where you live determines how much lithium there is in the drinking water. So where you live, what part of Europe, what part of the United States, what part of Asia, these studies have been done around the world. The lower amounts of lithium in the drinking water, higher rates of dementia and Alzheimer's. And... So there's a clear association. I think what is hard, because everyone's looking for the quick fix and the miracle drug, which we still haven't found after billions of dollars, is that the progression to dementia takes 30-plus years. So the treatment has to be a model for prevention. It can't be a pill. So, But lithium, it appears over a period of time, um, can affect all these variables that we've shown to be associated with the process of and Alzheimer's. I mm-hmm.
0: remember when I was traveling, I was up in Oregon and I was in Ashland. And in Ashland, I don't know if it's still there. This has been years. They had a fountain in a park kind of in the center of town. And it was lithiated water just coming out of spring water coming out of the earth. And there were yeah. many rumors about getting, you know, high. Or, but everybody back then was looking to get high. But it was so interesting to drink it and feel a certain... I don't know what to
1: call it it's smoothing is does it affect serotonin levels yeah actually increases those calming neurotransmitters GABA and serotonin and decreases the more activating neurotransmitters so most people would feel calm the one side effect that I've gotten over years was a doctor who took it and told me she felt too calm Um, but um, yes it can be very calming and um, I think what's been most helpful for has been the symptom of kind of irritability and impulsivity. hmm And has
0: have any municipalities ever that we know of thought about putting lithium in their drinking water supply? It seems in these times might be good. That's my opinion. <laughs> Just a thought.
1: Yeah. Well, someone uh, actually, a psychiatrist wrote an article in, in the New York Times you know, su- suggesting it or questioning if it's so good, why can't we do that? And it was just, you know, outrage. People compared it to fluoride and people only think of lithium as medication. There's certainly some profound public health implications um, to think of it, but um, there's also a newer research that came out that lithium in the drink of water might be a contributing factor to uh, autism in the uh, in pregnancy. So it was not a great study, but it was just one and got a lot of press. So we've always uh, and uh, never recommended you know, taking lithium supplements for pregnancy. So there's some argument about why we'd not want to put lithium in the drink of water, but there's certainly no argument to uh, not consider supplementing, um, mm-hmm. particularly as we hmm. age. Do you know if you
0: can absorb that dermally, having been in hot springs that were lithiated? I'm asking that question. Or would it 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 mostly be from drinking?
1: Yeah, I haven't seen much um, research on that. I know like magnesium, which is a similar molecular weight, can be uh, absorbed through the skin. So we just haven't seen enough written about if lithium can be. But certainly hot springs um for years, for centuries, um, you know, from Roman times to, to some in Georgia and Texas. Um these were all places and some of the presidents would go to these Georgia springs um uh for you know health and healing.
0: Taking the waters, I think as they like to say. <laughs> That may have been more of a European thing. The Europeans have always been much more aware of the benefit of soaking in spring water, or hot, I mean springs, hot water coming out of the earth. I live about an hour from Calistoga, so there's, that's sort of a mecca of hot water soaking and mud soaking, which is really quite pleasant. And I'm never sure if there's something in the water, I mean that in a good way, uh, that makes the mud you come out so relaxed and so at ease, and for the most part, really quite Chilled out in the best of ways. Uh, often, you know, off to like laying by the pool and napping heavily, <laughs> which I think is never bad. But that may be also may be magnesium, which I'm also a fan of. I want to jump here slightly. Is there any relationship or correlation, or I don't know what, or thread? I'm not sure quite what the phrase is between Alzheimer. How is Alzheimer's different than dementia?
1: Well, I think uh, all, dementia is kind of the overarching term for cognitive decline, and there are many causes, and, and Alzheimer's is just one. And the truth is we really can't, you know, officially diagnose Alzheimer's without looking at the brain to see the, the classic, um, you know, pathology. But there are other forms of dementia um, uh, that we are aware of and can diagnose. and that, You know, the tragedy is we just can better know the course of the illness, but they're just different causes. Okay.
0: And I'm, I'm jumping here because this just rolled into my brain. In the book, the um, longevity studies, they looked at areas where Areas in the world where people lived longer, and one of them was Sardinia. The men of Sardinia seem to live the longest. Now they have a lifestyle of going out and walking their sheep up and sheep and goats up and down hills all day long. Sunshine, fresh air, exercise, probably eating organic foods because that's just the lifestyle. I'm wondering if anybody has looked at the possibility that in their in the minerals around them, those kinds of studies where we've looked at people possibly having an organic... Is there an organic way to get lithium into the system? Are there foods known for lithium or is it really want to be that sort of Hans-Nieper school of lithium orotate as an oral? Well,
1: I mean, there's, you know, many natural forms of, of lithium. Lithium orotate's not necessarily, um, you know, found easily, uh in nature. So there's uh it's in the water supply, which means it leaches into our soil. So we get some in the the vegetables we eat and some of the animal products, but for most of us it's, you know, going to be in the tap water. Now the concern is that most people aren't drinking much tap water, it's, you know, with this multi-billion dollar bottled water business and lithium is often filtered out. So I've been testing for lithium um, in hair samples for 30-plus years, Hmm. and I used to see a percentage. It was under 50%, maybe 25% of the patients seeing me had undetectable lithium in the hair. And now I'm seeing over 50%. And, again, I've skewed practice, you know, people speaking out of psychiatrists. But I think I'm seeing much more undetectable lithium, um, you know, Based on likely the bottled water or other chemicals binding the uh, lithium.
0: And is there a downside to taking lithium, nutritional lithium? I mean, is it does it have a side effect ever?
1: Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, uh, and that's why you know the doses we recommend to people are one to two milligrams. Um, There are supplements out there, people taking 20 and 40 and 60 milligrams, and, yeah, it could be side effects. Um, Sometimes we've seen irritability. Sometimes we've seen, um, again, people feeling kind of calm and a little uh, lightheaded. But that's on high dosages, and that's for some individuals. But starting off at what I think of more of a physiological dose for someone who's not pregnant, two milligrams, I have not seen side effects.
0: Mm-hmm. and this is not quite jumping it's still talking about lithium is low dose nutritional lithium still number one for treatment of mood, behavioral and cognitive disorders in your mind after that looking at diet I'm adding after looking at diet
1: yeah I mean I think um, diet um, obviously lifestyle so sleep and exercise and, and lithium is, is not as helpful for just the very, what we call major depressive disorder. Someone is just sad and lack of motivated. But if there's irritability, if there's that uh, part of the mood disorders, then absolutely it can be the most helpful. And one of the things I learned from Jonathan Wright, you mentioned him, that uh, the family history can help determine who would benefit from lithium, and if there's a family history of addiction or depression or aggression or uh, any kind of substance abuse, then often they're much better responders to nutritional lithium. Hmm.
0: That's fascinating. I came from a family of classic drinkers, cocktails, uh, but that was the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where it was just that was part of the lifestyle. They weren't alcoholics in the sense of they weren't didn't have a bottle in their file drawer or didn't have a flask in their pocket or but it was a very social time. So it's interesting that I would be starting taking lithium somewhere in the late eighties after talking to Jonathan Wright. So maybe that helped me. Although I've never had a craving for alcohol. That's excellent. So can people just go out and get li- over-the-counter lithium today, or are there certain qualities or a certain something we should be looking for?
1: Um, there's, there's certainly, you know, it's available, uh, you know, I hate to keep using the term, Amazon, you know, people can get lithium anywhere, but you, you, there's no regulation in the industry, so the supplement industry, so you want to get it from a reputable company that you know or your your doctor knows or health professional and again i just think too many people utilize uh, too high dosages because they they just don't understand it so you know my recommendation is is to find the one milligram pills and um you know just start with two milligrams you know Mm -hmm. unless you're under the care of somebody who can help you
0: right and does it want to be taken with food, or is it an empty stomach, or how does it how does it prefer being taken?
1: Well, the good news is it really can be taken at any time. It's absorbed pretty easily, so um, any time is fine. Okay.
0: I, can't we bring back lithiated bottled water? It would be great if somebody would come up with a bottled water that was actually lithium water, I think. In my yeah,
1: you know, I, there are some um, of the bottled waters you can get at the health food store that some people, you know, there are higher lithium contents of one than the other that people talk about. But I do think um, it certainly would make sense, yes. So for the for the big category, I'm still
0: talking about lithium, of anorexia, ADHD, Alzheimer's, depression, uh eating disorders of all kinds, whether it's too much or too little or vegan, we could all be using one to two milligrams of lithium. That's a badly formed question.
1: Uh, Yeah, the answer is pretty simple. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. And certainly as we age, the the literature and the scientific evidence of lithium as being um, a nutrient that can prevent cognitive decline would make you want to put that on your list. And to me again, if if dementia is a Alzheimer's in particular is this twenty or thirty year process, then anything that we can do, you know, in our thirties and forties will certainly make a dent in that process. I mean, that including lifestyle, sleep, exercise and diet, but there are some of these nutrients that can uh, uh, truly affect the neurophysiology to prevent the accumulation of uh, amyloid and and this tau Mm -hmm. protein that we understand to be a contributing factor. Wow.
0: Something that affects the amyloids. That's amazing. And does dyslexia fit into this? Is dyslexia in this world of th- those conditions and others, or is dyslexia its own special beast, so to speak?
1: Yeah, I think um, the, probably best to put dyslexia, the uh, learning disabilities, in a special category. There are oftentimes we've seen kids with ADHD and and, and learning difficulties, and those when we treat them, those improve pretty dramatically. But there are other times that, you know, these learning disabilities are kind of hardwired and some people, you know, might have trouble with um, reading or writing or other aspects of learning and and then just learn to adapt and develop, you know, their skills, um, which might be different to accommodate some of these disabilities.
0: Uh Part of the reason I'm asking that question is I grew up and nobody... Back then, they didn't really test you for dyslexia. They just called you slow. <laughs> so right. I was slow and fat, thusly dexedrine. And it wasn't until somewhere in the early 60s that we moved, and we moved next door to a retired schoolteacher who was tutoring me. And at some point, she sort of like patted me on the back and went, oh, honey, I know what's wrong. I'll help you. And she taught me to read phonetically. Ah. So that I read slow, but I can read, like I can read your bio and don't have any issues. But I still have hangover in terms of sometimes if I'm under stress or too much stress, I know that words will not be great for me. Reading words, I've I've taught myself how to talk. I never was a stutterer, but I was always kind of shy. And so that's why I'm asking about the dyslexia, because I just think, it's a real sleeper it's a real gnarly thing and people think you're just kind of you know I, I don't know how it is in schools now but I suspect it's still looked upon how does psychiatry treat dyslexia normal regular old-school psychiatry I'll call it versus what you might do
1: um, well I think psychiatry the medical profession probably just ignores it and we pass the buck to <laughs> educational psychologists and educators, and again, it only becomes a psychiatric issue when there's what we call a coexisting ADHD or behavior problem or other illnesses. So, most learning disabilities are treated by um, educational psychologists and or, you know, a specialists who can really, as you described, help people uh, learn in different ways. So, there's, there's certainly so much that can be done to take away the, both the stigma and the limitations and just a matter of educators and parents uh, being able to find the resources. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: for me, what it did is it made me a pretty darn skilled photographer because I was quiet Absolutely, and yeah. somewhat, somewhat uh, reserved, I'll say. And people thought, once my teachers talked to me, they realized, oh, no, there's, you're fine what's wrong? Right, Why right. do they think you're that way? But it made me a very skilled photographer because I was very observational. And so I've had a camera in my hand since junior high. And that's where I expressed myself. And then once I learned to talk, now people can't get me to shut up. But that's right. a whole separate issue. Now I need a medication for that. Uh, I'm jumping to... Why do you think we have such a deficiency of magnesium? Because I know you think that it's really critical for our health. Why do we have such a deficiency?
1: Bad food? Well, it's it's, uh, probably many reasons. Uh, Let's start with um, number one would be the quality of um, the soil you know that we're farming and um, you know we we don't replete magnesium so we completely deplete magnesium from the soil so we're eating food that has less magnesium even though it might look like a carrot or a vegetable so the food supply is part of it but it's also the kind of food we you know it's it's in the whole grain so it's not in the white bread so we've refined food to the point where we're stripping out magnesium so that's the food supply and then um, there are things where we lose magnesium the most common is probably stress so as our cortisol level goes up we deplete more magnesium many of the medications you talked about um, dexedrine the amphetamines we give to 80% of ADHD kids that causes a depletion of magnesium uh, soft drinks so the the phosphoric acid in all the colas that uh, and whether it's diet or regular, it's that phosphoric acid that binds zinc and makes it less available. So there are just so many factors that are cumulative that cause a depletion of magnesium. And, and I consider magnesium deficiency to be the most common nutrient deficiency in a mental health practice. And
0: yes, better diets, organic have an occasional grass-fed, grass-finished steak. That's my opinion. Again, is there a is there a level of supplementation? And do you, there's a lot of talk about different kinds of magnesium. Is there a kind of magnesium, or a, I don't mean a brand. I just mean a a type. Or, it, or do you think all magnesium is going to be good for us? That's a big I, question. I
1: do think the that that types of magnesium are you know becoming supplement companies advertising and marketing and saying theirs are better. I think that um, if you're looking for a laxative, magnesium oxide is less absorbed and that has a laxative effect. But I think many of the other forms of magnesium are absolutely appropriate. And um, I do think there are some psychiatric illnesses like ADHD where people just have a higher need for magnesium. So it is a common uh, nutritional supplement that we recommend.
0: I have I st- I have a standing workstation, so I'm on standing in front of the computer for probably six to eight hours a day because of producing and what I do. And it's a very preference. I like standing. I feel better standing. I move around a lot more, just wiggling and bouncing up and down and doing stuff, so I'm standing. But sometimes I'll have leg cramps. Is that indicative of I need more magnesium? Or stretching probably would be helpful as well. I stretched in the 90s
1: and stopped. <laughs> right right uh you Electrolytes? know when, when well yeah when people uh, between the yoga the sweating yoga and the saunas now and and exercise um with sweat you do lose magnesium um and oftentimes uh it can be a problem when it's not replaced that you you're also losing other trace minerals like zinc potassium Perfect. but um you know, sauna is becoming a, a a new item and it's probably for good reasons, health reasons and detoxification, but people often forget that these nutrients are being depleted.
0: I see commercials, this shocks me now that I see it, where they're having, they're suggesting, the the classic is, you know, the kid is walking down the hallway and saying, Dad, that's my pediolite." But they have adults, they've found some amazing marketing angle to suggest that people should be drinking pediolites when they're imbalanced electrolytes. And I'm more of the school of take some whole salt, whole food salt, and put just a pinch in every glass of water. Because you're getting a good blend of minerals, particularly if it's mined salt, it's a whole mineral. Or there are all sorts of packets, whether it's Olaloa, which is uh, from Richard Koonin's work. And you know those kinds of things. So I'm a fan of electrolytes. I think that's particularly because I, in my feeling, is that it's our brain needs electrolytes to function well. Can we go wrong with electrolytes?
1: Well, I mean, I think uh, certainly can go wrong with anything. And certainly in the field of eating disorders, we see people that will, you know, have severe problems by taking too much of a supplement or electrolyte, but most of the time, particularly with the whole foods like salt, I mean, it's just balanced and it it's uh, it's appropriate. I think um, people sometimes, particularly, you know, diet fads, sometimes a ketogenic diet, people are not um, aware of some of the electrolyte abnormalities that exist and can cause problems. So, you know, I think the term, um, you know, is close to what's in nature is always the best and not be so reliant on... Um, taking too many um, synthetic supplements will always um,
0: be appropriate. Mm-hmm. This was, uh, in my mind, kind of a Groucho Marx moment. Uh, you said ketogenic diet. So I need to ask you about what are your thoughts on, the, on what I'll call the use of the ketogenic diet? Where can people go awry? Again, that's an opinion. Well, I
1: mean, I, th- I think the research... Um, it's one of the few things in psychiatry, actually, that the academic world um, has taken an interest in. So oh. um, there's a clinic in Stanford. There are clinics in in, in Europe now that are looking at. But Harvard wants to start one, looking at the metabolic diet for mental illness, mental illness from bipolar <laughs> to schizophrenia, and I've seen pretty dramatic uh, improvement. But like everything else, from psychedelics to Magnetic stimulation, people are just seeing this tool as, as the answer to all of our problems with mental illness. So I see the ketogenic diet as potentially a powerful tool, um, certainly for uh, insulin resistance and diabetes, but also for, for mental health challenges. But it is just a tool, and I'm not as convinced it's a, it's a lifestyle. And um, because it does have to be monitored, not everyone does well. And it's it's hard to, uh, you know, to, co- to be compliant. And, and, you know, there are pros and cons of the, on the nutritional benefits. But as a tool, it has profound metabolic changes in the brain that we can't ignore. And do you think part of that
0: quality is that when you go on a ketogenic diet, you strip away most grains and refined carbohydrates, and those can be what I will term evildoers in terms of back to talking about glyphosate and sprays and microbiome of the soils and all that. Do you think that's part of the, not exactly a side effect, but benefit of going on a ketogenic diet for at least for a period of time to get away a lot of those allergens?
1: Yeah, I mean, people, you know, they do these diet studies and, and they compare the vegan and keto and paleo and 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 everybody gets better. Partly because, you know, in these studies you're eliminating the, the junk, the refined sugar and uh, the processed foods. So, yes, absolutely a benefit is limiting um, the grains and the ultra processed foods.
0: The word I never like to use on any menu I've ever written. I used to be a chef. So the idea of, you know, yes, more processed foods. <laughs> Please. I like all my food severely processed. Well, that's a frightening idea. I I have to ask for our last few minutes, what do you think about kids on vegan diets?
1: Uh, It, it is one of the uh, most concerning um, concepts or you know, uh, fads, if you will, that I think parents need to um, really be careful of. I think uh, when a child goes on a vegan diet, it's not like they're, you know, taking care of their health and looking at beans and grains and other nutrient-dense foods. They're just eliminating meat. So oftentimes it's, it's pasta and soda. And I've seen more physical and mental health challenges, mostly mental health, particularly eating disorders, depression, anxiety, on adolescent vegans. And again, it doesn't mean everybody, but it is a risky diet and parents have to be aware. And if there's religious reasons or cultural reasons, then you just need to make sure that you're monitoring some of these nutrients like zinc and B12 and certain amino acids because the the risks are pretty significant. And, uh, go no, go ahead no no it's it's just a important topic to me, and I think we have a lecture coming up um at psychiatry defined on vegan diets and adolescents because not understanding these concepts of the potential um for health challenges is is dangerous because most people see the vegan diet as a path towards health, and again, you're eliminating some junk food that might be good, but our adolescents aren't eliminating junk food. They might be Mm -hmm. eating more junk food if it doesn't contain an animal product. Right.
0: Right. I I have to ask, because that's why we're gathered together here, but this was really the pathway to where you are today on starting psychiatry redefined.
1: Well Are you are you you're
0: you're now wanting to educate your fellow psychiatric world of, hey, let's look at nutrition. Let's look at all these other factors. That's my overview.
1: Yeah, that's the the summary. We need to get this information to professionals. The research is there. Some of it, um, you know, we've been talking about for 30 years, but we not have the research to support it now. We have quite a powerful um, scientific uh, support base to say that these factors contribute to mental health, contribute to mental illness, and clinicians want to know the information. And part of it is, um, I think, some frustration that many of the patients knew more about nutrition than the doctors. And we're just trying to uh, provide that education.
0: It's amazing how many, because of what I've done, about 900 hours of shows, in this world and then I did terrestrial radio for four years how many people come to me and ask about like either a ketogenic or a you know some kind of vegan or the opposite of vegan diet and they were always surprised that I would lean much more toward a ketogenic diet than I would vegan because I think fats are really important and all the minerals and the micronutrients like I you'll always hear me say grass-fed grass-finished because there is a sort of an angle in the marketplace of selling grass-fed beef, but now they have that little window of like, is it grass-finished? Otherwise, you can end up having a grass-fed, grass-raised, but they'll finish it with corn, which is typically GMO. So grass-fed, grass-finished. But I'll always say, you know, have a burger twice a week. Maybe bison, you know, just something with good fats, with whole fats on it. It's amazing the difference. People will come back sometimes and say, Wow, just that really made such a difference. So I'm really, I'm so happy that you're doing this to put your thoughts out there into the world and get people to go, Oh, you can do more than give them a pill, having been a kid who was put on dexedrine because it was fat. Good, right, grunt, right. good grief. What a frightening idea.
1: Absolutely. There's a lot more we can do. So hopefully. Um we're finding more and more uh, clinicians, psychiatrists, nurse practitioners, psychologists now are interested in this information, and we're um, developing uh, short-term trainings as well as year-long fellowships in integrative and functional medicine for mental health.
0: Wonderful. Now, are these all for licensed professionals, or can lay people take your classes if they want for the information? Well, we're
1: just... You know, for the information, uh, anyone can take it. Some of it, you know, goes in uh, detail. We are, in the fall, we'll be developing a consumer, much more patient-friendly version of some of these courses. But, yeah, the and psychiatrydefined.org, it's, uh, you know, open to anyone who wants to learn more.
0: Oh, well, have you put me on the list or have your assistant put me on the list for that? Because I there's some of the, I've read the courses that I thought, this would be really interesting because I think it's such great information for people to have, that what you put in your face will help your mind. <laughs> a Pretty simple game, but concept, kind of
1: but not part of our yeah, model. It is.
0: Um, doctor, thank you so much. That was fun as always. Great. And good talking to you again.
1: You bet. Take care.
0: You too. Everybody else, have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.